Hi, I'm Tan Lei, and this is a look back compilation episode from the first season. I'm calling it the first volume of Noticing the Obvious. In this first volume, I had 11 excellent guests who shared valuable stories and insight. For those of you who are new to this podcast, who haven't listened to many episodes before, this is a good one to start with. I picked out some of the most memorable bits from each guest and put them all together here in a highlights compilation. So let's get into it. Let's start with Nikki Dean. She is a television presenter from England. And what I wanted to ask her was whether being a good communicator, like a professional communicator, communicating for a living, has that helped her in real life when she's having a disagreement with a boyfriend or when she's negotiating uh, a salary from a potential employer. And this is what she said. I think so. I think, you know, if I, if I look even back being a, a young kid and stuff, I, I've always probably, if I can say this, you know, again, it's something that none of us are very good at doing is, is owning it and saying what we think we're good at. I, I am good at communicating. I'm able to get across my point. But I think what it is, is it's because I really genuinely am fascinated by people. I love people. I love hearing the stories. Mm. Um, and I think that down to earth, you know, that mentality and remembering that we are all just human. So if we treat people how we want to be treated and we try and get our point across in a, you know, a nice way, a, fr- a friendly way and, and, and bear that in mind, has it helped me? I definitely think that it has. I've had, I have had lots of people say similar things to me, actually, that I think it's the fact that I really like people and like talking. <laughs> don't know if you've gone <laughs> on to that fact yet. Um, it has helped me. Not always. I mean, negotiating with partners. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it would apply there necessarily. I think yes in day to day, but I think if there's a point in time where maybe you don't agree on a point, it's definitely helped me. I think I am good at getting my ideas across. But I honestly, I don't think it's to do with being a presenter per se. I think it's to do with liking people okay. and wanting to find solutions and being positive. Um, and also knowing when to listen. I think that's important. Key. That is huge. I'm just wondering. I can't like... say I always do that brilliantly. <laughs> 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 but I try. I try. I love it. I wonder if it's one of those one of those cases where if somebody's really tall and they're a basketball player and you ask them, hey, does being tall help you? They can't really compare it to anything else. And it's the same as you. Like if I ask you, hey, does being a good communicator, being able to speak well, has that helped you? Maybe you don't have anything to compare it with. Or do you? Like, Can you remember not being able to express yourself? wow that's a really interesting question I mean listen in also when when emotions are heightened so I'm thinking when I say this the example of maybe when you're in disagreement with somebody yes when emotions are heightened I don't think any of us really are that great at communicating that's definitely a skill that you need to learn rather than something that's inherent Mm. um I can't say I come across that many 
situations like that but of course it's happened particularly with partners you know you have maybe I maybe don't quite see eye to eye on something and there's a trigger for you and I think when that you know when that happens maybe none of us are that great at communicating because we're so fixated on our point being heard that maybe we don't hear other people's I think that's probably the same for most people um so you notice that about yourself Oh, you notice that, oh, yeah, I, I oh, could totally. have said that better. Oh, I think we all do, don't we? I think in hindsight, I think it's when emotions are heightened, when either you feel angry, worried, scared, unheard, almost disrespected, those sorts of situations, I think is when maybe, not all of us, I think some people are probably better than others. I recognise that's an area where maybe... I could listen a bit more. I could take more breaths. I could try to not keep <laughs> saying my point over and over so somebody <laughs> hears me. Um, but yeah, as, as I say, those situations don't happen every day. Um, I think on the whole, on the whole, I think if you're focused on a positive outcome and you listen and you have a good point to put across, I think that the outcome is generally positive. Um, you talked about negotiating though in jobs and stuff mm. I'm not, I don't think I'm great at negotiating okay so you think Things that's like, a different skill um I think no I think there's elements I think maybe when you said the word negotiating I instantly linked it with financial so yeah maybe like I mean negotiating money yeah negotiating um you know things like benefits Terms, time off, that yeah. Sort of thing. yeah I don't think I'm that great at that and I don't know if that's a female trait am I allowed to say that <laughs> maybe we don't it's not that we don't value ourselves it's just that it's it can come across or feel like it's maybe a bit too assertive or could be borderline aggressive where you know I'm worth this and I think I should have this um I recognize I'm not that great in those situations I'd much rather do that on email <laughs> um now I am freelancer there I have to actually talk about money a lot of the time yeah. a lot of the time uh, but I would avoid doing it on the phone I would avoid doing it face to face I would again you know I'll let me get back to you tell me what it is that you're after and then I'd ping it over um, and I think okay. instantly I go to, I'm normally this, but because of, and I'll find a reason, location, length of time the project takes, etc. I could give you a discount. I do that so readily. And yeah. maybe I don't need to do that. No. I, it's an embarrassment thing. Like, oh God, maybe they don't think I'm worth that. Oh. So we still, you know, regardless of how we come across to people, regardless maybe of how much experience we have, I think, well, for me anyway, I'm perhaps talking on other people's behalf for me I think there's always that oh I don't want to talk about money I don't want to talk about I just want to turn up do the job have a laugh be professional mm. do you a good job and maybe let someone else do that <laughs> I mean a great example is so as a presenter most presenters would have an agent or people other people that get work for them mm. and I don't know if that's that's a really great example of exactly why because you asking for uh, certain things comes across as a bit egotistical perhaps mm. a bit arrogant oh they're a bit full of themselves but somebody else that mm. buffer they mm. don't so they might ask for things I mean I have absolutely no idea when people have negotiated things for me what they've actually asked for I've yes. absolutely no idea and I almost don't care as long as I get the job and turn mm. up and then that's when I, I always and I, I know I'm good at it and it's a genuine thing it's not for any other reason you know it's not cultivated I, I have get a good rapport with people so even if they 
I don't know, beforehand, somebody's been a bit out there and asked for things that are a bit demanding or a bit, I don't know. Once they meet you, I think it's, oh, she's not asked for it. That was her agent. It's almost like there's an excuse for somebody on your behalf. Yeah. I know when I've negotiated work for other people, um, so I've sent models and things out on, on promotional campaigns mm. and brand ambassadors, they call them. Mm. Um, you know, maybe things like contracts. There's always a contract and there's always a, you know, can you make sure you get it back signed to me and, and pay particular attention to this? And they'll need to have a meal provided and they'll need to have a private space to get changed, blah, blah. Do I do that for myself? Never. I've never done <laughs> that. Know. I've never sent a contract and said, before I turn up to your I job, know. could you pay special attention to section 10? And I'll need, know. you know, blue, blue smarties. You know, I, I don't quite get to that extreme for the people. I'm joking. But um, no, I'm just grateful for the job. I thank you. That's great. Oh, wonderful. Okay, next we have David Blinoff. He is from Latvia and he's the founder of the F Company, which is a growth marketing agency based here in Helsinki. Uh, this was a really fun talk. We discuss failing and handling failure, learning and growing from failure. And in this conversation, I flex one of my superpowers which is the ability to bring basketball analogy into any subject. So that's the segment I've selected, but please go listen to the full episode when you have time later. Um, yeah, here is David. I literally just read a, um, a post on LinkedIn from the managing uh, director at uh, Visma, Visma Software, a oh. big Finnish company. What do you say? Um, and and he said that his team his team uh, sort of made this failure board like a physical board on the wall where wow. they would write down their failed experiments, and they encouraged the managing director to sort of take part and write down what he tried and failed at this week. And I think it's a very um, you know it's a very encouraging example. It's a fantastic example of the kind of culture that you can build inside organizations. And you know from my experience, unfortunately that's almost never the case yeah <laughs> what do you mean it's never the case like not enough people follow that you know in mo I, I i can go as far as saying that in most companies failure is not accepted yes. as a way of learning and we've done quite a bit of research uh, on that subject for one of the one of the events that we did a couple of months ago. In fact, in over seventy percent of the companies, failure is looked down upon. Mm. And at that event that we had, we we had an open discussion with marketing leaders uh, from different different B two B companies, and and many of them honestly and openly told us that, hey, we would love to experiment. We would love to, honestly. It's a fantastic way to learn. It's a great way to improve. But in our company, you simply cannot fail. It's, it's seen as a shameful thing to do. <laughs> right. But that's not just, I mean, it is, it is companies, but where does it start? It starts at the human level. People, we know, we know, like, don't fail, sorry, uh, don't fear failure. That's a cliche. Everybody knows you shouldn't fear failure, but everybody still fears it, even from a human level. So, of course, we're, businesses are going to 
look down upon failure. Nobody's going to celebrate failure. It sounds good in theory, but nobody's going to actually do it. <laughs> you know, I, th I think you're right. I, I, I feel like there are maybe two sides to the coin, of course. Um, you know, failure can bring certain feelings on a personal level. It never feels good to fail. But I also feel like change needs to come from the company culture level at the same time. Um, if the company sort of proactively communicates to its employees that uh, experimentation and trying things out is encouraged, and if you fail and learn something from it, it's it's a great and, and beautiful thing, then perhaps the, the, the employees on a personal level wouldn't feel so uh, wouldn't feel so negatively about uh, about failure as well. So it's it's a very complex topic, I think. I'm a, I'm a huge basketball fan, right? And right. in in basketball, they don't measure success from whether you make a basket or not. So when somebody shoots, right, a good shot, there's such a thing as a good shot, and there's such a thing as a bad shot. Now this is this is the crazy thing. You can have a good shot that misses. That doesn't go in. That gets you zero points. But you can have a good shot. But you can also have a bad shot that goes in. That gets you two points. Right. But that can be classed as a bad shot. So how basketball players and coaches and trainers, how did they, how they measure whether a shot is good or bad is the process of getting that shot. So the team works together and then they pass the ball to the man that's open meaning there's no defenders around him and if that guy takes the shot that's a good shot right does that make sense so then they don't care whether the shot goes in or not if you take a good shot then it's like great shot well done get back on defense uh, right so inversely if a, a superstar player doesn't pass the ball and he just drives into five defenders and jumps through them all and then does a reverse in the air flip shot and it goes in, <laughs> that's still a bad shot. They call it a bad shot. Right. That's a bad shot. So I love that. Um, and you can, you know, you can use that. It's all about if you, so look, bringing it back into our field, if I've, or maybe not even work, let's just bring it to personal life. If I've done everything that I, set out to do you know if i've if i followed my processes and i experimented and then i still didn't achieve the goal whatever the goal was i don't know make money let's say then i should still be happy even though it's a failure i should be yeah. happy and learn from it and grow does that make sense exactly yeah so as that, long as you've learned from it as long yeah. as you've learned from it because that's really key you know if if you keep failing and if you keep sort of um, falling face down and not learning anything from it, then it's just failures for the sake of failures. Yeah. And you can also have, well, like you, when you first, your first uh, website, you made money, right? But doesn't mean you necessarily learn from it. You just, you know what I'm saying? It's like the, the shot that goes in, but it's a bad shot. Right, just yeah. because you made money from it, it doesn't mean it was necessarily you. You necessarily followed the right protocols, the yeah, the right things to do, and you didn't learn from it. That's why your next few failed. Right. So what you're saying is that at the end of the day, you know, in basketball and in life, it doesn't always matter whether you succeed or fail. But what matters is that you take the right steps and you learn from uh, from each step you take. 
Yes. Yeah, it, it shouldn't be about the results. It should be about the process. It's about developing and making your processes better every day. Exactly. You know, I, I used to, to illustrate that point with, with one more example. Um, one of the things I did when I was, uh, when I was a teenager, well, yeah, when I was younger, uh, to make money uh, was playing cards for a living. So for a number of years, I played poker. I traveled around the world and I, 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 uh, I played cards. And wow. in, in poker, you know, when it comes to um, short distance, when it comes to any individual game or any individual tournament, it doesn't matter how good you are. Yes. Um, simply because even if you make all the right decisions, yes, yes, you yes. still lose. Yes, absolutely. Really good example. So if you then, make all the right decisions and you lose, exactly. you shouldn't feel bad. Exactly. So in poker as well, they have uh, sort of different terminology that determines whether, whether you're going to be successful in the long run. So it's all about the long run. Exactly. And it's all about making the right decisions because mathematically it's going to pay off in the long run. Yes. And of course, if you keep making those, if, if, if you keep failing, uh, even if you make good decisions, there is a very good chance that you will keep failing and it's very discouraging but as long as you know that you keep learning and you keep making the right moves, eventually you will succeed. It's just simple mathematics. Yes, I love that. Yeah, it's the same. So it's like if if the team, just going quickly back to basketball, just so I can connect this to what you just said with poker. <laughs> um, if you keep shooting good shots, meaning yes. if you keep passing the ball around and waiting for the guy to be open and then keep shooting those good shots eventually over the course of the game the numbers will work out and you exactly. will, you know you will bring the odds in your favor if you keep taking bad shots even though they might go in in the short term this one might go in and the next one might go in in for the whole of the game you cannot win a game by just making bad shots exactly up next we have Leo Hiruk. He is a research scientist from Russia. His company Neurotar develops research tools and services for academia and for the pharmaceutical industry. He has done many years of research on the brains of mice and I wanted to ask him how do the brains of mice compare to human brains? What can he, what has he learned? And in this segment that I'm about to play, we talk about one of my favorite things to talk about, which is why having knowledge, why knowing a thing isn't useful if you're not going to do anything about it. Here's Leo. So what can you learn about humans uh, from looking at mice? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a question, a good question. You, you can talk about it for hours, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on a very simplistic, basic level, what I learned was that we are very similar biophysically and physiologically to uh, other mammals, even to mice. There are certain things that, yeah. that work very similarly. And... Uh, that's a fun part. Uh, it's encouraging in the sense that it, it uh, satisfies the curiosity of a scientist and also helps de develop better drugs uh, to treat human diseases. But on the other hand, it's sort of 
unsettling and scary a bit to see how similar we are to other animals in many respects. And I don't think it's only physiologically and uh, biophysically or anatomically that we are similar, but also psychologically. <laughs> the, yeah, the, absolutely. There are so many things that we do automatically uh, in a reflective, re, uh, kind of reflex-based way. And this is what fascinates me in how some people are much more aware and conscious uh, about the mm. way their bodies and their minds work, and they seem to master this process much better. Uh, I'm not talking about mm. their digestion of blood flow, <laughs> heartbeat processes, but their thinking process, their uh, emotional mm. reactions. And others uh, behave more like animals, we would say, in, in, in that everything is pre determined by the genes, by the pre previously acquired reflexes and learned, uh, you know, the instinctive and uh, learned behaviors. Mm. And mm. Uh, when I look around and I look at myself as well, I just, uh, oh, yeah. I'm amazed how much of it is going uh, on, on the background on the unconsciously, automatically in the zombie kind of style. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what fascinates me. And uh, I think in animals, we can learn a great deal uh, from experiments on animals, uh, not only about their body's reaction and their brain's reaction, but also about their minds, their uh, psychology, uh, their complex behavior and decision-making processes. Of course, they're very different from humans. This is where we differ a lot. Uh, we have a language, we have uh, a symbolic uh, system of language and numbers and all sorts of other symbols. We have a capability of thinking in an abstract way, of thinking about thinking and thinking about thinking about thinking, mm. <laughs> all layers mm. of complexity, which may or may not exist in animals. We just don't know. We don't speak their languages. So, mm. so this is where it gets really confusing. So some of our clients in the pharmaceutical industry are working on psychiatric diseases and psychological mood disorders. And they have a really hard time translating the results of animal experiments into predictable results in, in human patients. Because this is where we differ a lot from other mammals and from other animals and the higher cognitive function and a higher nervous system function. Mm. So, yeah, I learned both about similarities and dissimilarities, differences, and both are fascinating to me. Yeah, me too. And, and the other fascinating thing is, even if we know it, even if we have this information that if this sensory input comes, then I will react this way. Even if you know it, a lot of times we can't stop it. Or we can watch ourselves, yep. you know, going down this path, which we know, which we knew we were going to. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. So knowing it sometimes isn't enough, no. but it's a first step. Yes, and uh, this is where uh, I distinguish between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, knowledge is not oh, yeah. actionable, wisdom is. And uh, interestingly, when we transfer, transform the information from the, the scattered bits into some organized information and then into knowledge, it still is a long way uh, before it starts affecting our behavior. We can know exactly Absolutely what we huge. need to do, what we must do, what is good for us, and never do it. Because uh, the decisions ah, no, that we make... That's, <laughs> that is 
that's humanity described in one sentence right yeah. there. Yes, and, and, and this is where all the guilt and uh, fears and uh, dissatisfaction with life come from, from this cognitive dissonance, from the dissociation. Uh, I think Apostle Paul, uh, although I, I generally don't like the, the effect that he had on uh, the, the development of Christianity, but he had some smart things that he wrote in his epistles. And one of them was that I find only the desire to do the right things in me, but the capability of doing it, I don't find it. <laughs> and that's exactly because the, the knowledge is useless unless it sort of is condensed down, distilled to actionable wisdom, uh, which people sometimes call gut feeling. Your, mm. You know, your gut brain axis is very strong and it uh, not just affects, but pretty much determines the decisions that you're going to be making, uh, the things that you will like or dislike, the things you will believe or uh, doubt. Uh, these are all emotional reactions. And we just, we spend most of our time rationalizing our emotional decisions, <laughs> either accusing mm. ourselves for doing the wrong thing or justifying ourselves uh, when we do what we think are the right things. But it, it's usually post-factum. The decision is a snap decision that is made by the what we call fast brain or limbic brain. Okay, next up is Debbie Steer. She is a film producer. She specializes in animation. She lives in Sydney, Australia. In her episode, we talk about her adventures, her journey emigrating from the UK to Australia and trying to break into an extremely competitive industry and eventually becoming a big success. Go Debbie! Um, but in this segment I'm about to play you, we talk about decision-making. You'll hear Debbie tell me that she feels she's a good decision-maker. And I was very excited to hear that because... I don't think I've met many people who consider themselves a good decision maker. So I wanted to figure out her decision making process and what she said after she said it, of course, was super obvious, which is exactly what we're looking for in this podcast. Here's Debbie. Yeah, so um, there's, a, I mean, I have a few. I don't think there's anything that kind of encompasses the way I... I I execute certain ideas, but like, you know, lucky, lucky for me, I started off with quite a set ideal of where I wanted to head, but you know, there are always crossroads. There's always a, you know, a job offer here or um, a rejection there. And I, I think most of the time I've always, whenever I've had to contemplate a really hard decision, I've kind of weighed it up, but just uh, in the end of the day, I realized that whichever choice you go for, it's, it, there's never right and wrong choice. It's not as black and white as you'd, think like mm. there's pros and cons for each choice so you kind of just weigh those up kind of I don't I don't dwell on it for too long because I think that if you do you're going to end up sitting there going oh did I make the right choice did I choose the right path but at the same time you kind of go just make a choice that you feel the most comfortable with right now and then just don't look back because if you start looking back that's when you start getting regrets and you know the grass you will always look greener because you haven't gotten gone down that path mm. and you don't know what would have happened if you did and you never will. So it's, I love it. 
I, f- I find it quite easy to make decisions. A lot of people struggle, but. Interesting.、Um, I want to know more about、yeah. that.、Um, why do you find it easy to make decisions?、Um, uh, because I don't always feel like it's, I don't think my path has been straight.、Mm. I think it's very zigzaggy and it's like it, every experience is going to be beneficial. So, you know, just going, just feeling like you're moving forward and you're learning something new is more important than making the exact right choice at that moment. Okay,、um, you said before that you, you started with a set idea where you wanted to head.、Um, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you mean? Like, what was your idea? What, where did you want to head to?、Um, well, I, obviously, that, that idea has evolved over the years as I've in, understood the industry more. But、uh, I think from the very beginning, it was down to when I was very, really young, it was down to the kind of shows I was watching on TV and what I was seeing. I kind of I loved the idea of being able to. I thought it was directing. I actually thought that's what I wanted to do.、Mm. Uh, you know, to kind of choose what happens on screen and how the actors act and things like that. So I kind of went down that for a while, but I actually didn't find that much satisfaction in directing、mm. and realized that producing was more what, where I was going for because I wanted to, you know, even before then, make the choices about who's going to direct and who's going to act. And exactly. How, yeah. Okay. So that was, that was the path you always saw for yourself. Sorry, not the path.、Yeah. That was the goal you always saw for yourself. But then the path、yes. you took, there was no set path. You just, you, know, you just had the end vision in mind and you were fluid、yeah. in terms of what path, where the path would go, as long as it's、yeah. in a general direction. Yeah, exactly. If, as long as it was in a general correct direction, I was、uh, willing to kind of try anything really and see where it, where it led me. You feel that you're a good decision maker. What do you see from others who don't make such good decisions? Why is that the case? Why do people make bad decisions? I don't think there's such a thing as a bad decision. I think that,、um, you know, you have to weigh the pros and cons for each, you know, if you're making a choice A or choice B. But what I do versus someone who makes a bad choice is that I don't look back and think about choice B too much. I just kind of keep moving forward. Right.、Um, Because, like, if you keep you know, ruminating and going around, it's actually quite useless, really, isn't it? It's such a waste of time. I love that.、Um, so simple and so obvious. Because once you've made a decision,、yeah. it's only a bad decision if you compare it to what you. The other one. The, yeah. yeah, the other one. But you, like, it's past. Ah, I love it. I love it. So if you, if you don't、yeah. compare it, then it's not a bad decision. It's just a. It's just on your path, you just continue. Yeah. And, you know, like, you, you don't know what the other decision would have been. You, you, I mean, you know, who knows? Like, unless you've got a twin who took the other one. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. In a parallel universe or something. Yeah. But in this like, universe,、like, you can only go forward. And in fact, you know, one of those was the new job that I got offered, you know, when I was telling you about.、Mm. Uh, that job actually felt like a week later, it was for Fury Road with Mad Max. And a week later, it had rained in the desert they were going to film. So they、wow. had to cancel the shoot. <laughs> I love that film. I love Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. So it was meant to start a year and a half before it actually started.、Ah. And I was hired to work on the visual effects for it. And、mm. um, it rained in,、uh, in Broken Hill where they were going to film. And the whole shoot was cancelled. And they had to basically make everybody redundant. So I would have literally been starting on my first day with a letter saying, I'm sorry, you can't.、Mm. <laughs> 
you can't stay. So actually that was probably one of the ones where I was like, you know, you, you really, it is like you, and even if I had chosen that one and that had happened, I know that I would have been offered something else and gone a different way. So it's not, I don't think it was, that, that was the only one where I could actually see the other path would have kind of, ha that was what would have happened. But even then I think I would have still been okay with it. Mm. Yeah, um, that, that's the key. Sometimes you see the other path. So that I think that's when it becomes difficult. You know, when the, there's a fork in the road, you choose path B, but then you see where path A led. And sometimes you can't yeah. help but compare. So I guess if it's hypothetical, it's easier to just forget about it. But if you can actually see, oh God, if I had yes. chose this, that's what I would have been. I would have been made redundant. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what if it was something better? That that's when when it really kills people. Like, oh, I chose this, but if I would have chose that, then oh no, it's also happened. Like, you know, I I turned down a movie that you know that won loads of awards, the Lego Movie. Mm. I turned that one down to work on a smaller sh movie, but in the end of the day, I I did it because I mean, you, I could sit there and go, oh, I, sh I should have done that one, but I chose the other one because I got more responsibility and I got more. Mm. And with the yeah, with Lego Movie, I, I, it would have been the same role, but um, under different circumstances, it would have been kind of more shared and more spread out. And this one, I ended up in a smaller movie where I did a lot more, kind of was in charge of the whole thing. So you can't, I don't know, I think you just can't. So true. Sit there and so true. You can't, well, the key is you can't regret it. Again, that's a super, hey. that's a super obvious point. I don't regret. We can't afford regrets. Yeah. Regrets do nothing for you. They don't, and there's yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can change. So I yeah, I guess I just try not to waste my time thinking about things that you can't, you know, you can't rewind. Next, we have Marco Lauhiela. He is the founder, CEO, and at the time of recording, CTO of a Finnish startup solving the problem of data organization in enterprises. We discuss what it's like for him to wear multiple hats in the company, the importance of organizing data visually in business and in personal situations. That's all in the full episode, but in this segment we talk about running. Marco runs every day, and he's really obsessed with it, which I found very inspiring. And he shares with me how he started running as a complete beginner. And of course, naturally, he found it extremely difficult. But then he said his mind started to shift. He started to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. And even more fascinating, he started looking for difficult things to do. I thought that was really cool. Here is Marco. I know last year you had the goal of running how many kilometers? Um, I, was, I intended to run a thousand kilometers last year. Okay, well, give me the big reveal now. What did you end up doing? Mm, 1,100 and... 40. Whoa, congratulations. Thank you. That's huge. And it's huge, but it's also kind of meh. <laughs> Come on, what, what, you smashed your goal. I know, and that's 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 the that's the big thing is that um 
you have to have a crazy goal. And, and let me let me say, nobody believed that I was going to run a thousand kilometers. Start because I started from scratch. Mm. Uh, two years uh, before, I was running about thirty kilometers per year. <laughs> okay, I was not a runner. I hated it all my life. Um, it's boring. It's monotonous. It's just not for me. Yeah, but you know things change and and you have to change uh but wait how did it change if you if it was really boring monotonous not for you what what turned you on to it think do things that are uncomfortable so i was thinking you know i'm uh i turned 45 um uh, two years ago almost Mm. and um as it was now or never okay and what i wanted to do was just to get kind of in a better shape I didn't have a focus on what I wanted to do. So I started in August 2018. And by December 2018, I was not running as, as much as I could. So in, in December of 2018, I decided, I put myself this, uh, put this goal forward for, uh, of, of running a thousand kilometers. Excellent. So I, I, I didn't essentially start with a, with a clear goal. And that, that's the problem. If you don't have a goal, you know, you know just wander around and do something aimlessly and you yep. lose motivation and you lose focus and lose commitment and, and then you quit yeah <laughs> so so i had this crazy crazy goal of running a thousand kilometers and uh, nobody believed that i could do it i kind of felt that i could do it i did the math and i said yeah why not it's it's possible um if, if i stay healthy and i didn't stay healthy all the way through um that kind of <laughs> Actually, it was uh, just uh, nine kilometers before I could reach my goal that I was um, I had a big flu and uh, I thought, man, this is not, not going to end well. And then I hurt my foot. So okay. that was, uh, it was a crazy thing. But so I, yeah, I your final total would have been higher if you didn't hurt your foot. Is two, that what yeah, I essentially missed about two months of, of running due to injuries and, uh, and having a fold a couple wow. of times. And still, well, yeah. you did a thousand one hundred. Amazing. I mean, yeah. So let me it, ask: Did you run every day, or was it every week, or every few days? Um, how many kilometers did you average per run? Six point five kilometers per run, which is crazy considering. Which my is like every run. other day. Yeah, I was running every other day. One hundred and seventy. It's one hundred and seventy-one runs okay. uh, over the over the two thousand nineteen, and uh, that's I every other am, day. Wow. Almost, yeah. Um, and uh, the body does get used to it, um, but you, you cannot forget stretching. That's, that's, that's the one thing that I learned, and I hurt my back because I didn't stretch, didn't take care of my, my body, and uh, that's, uh, that cost me three, almost a month of uh, downtime. Okay, and, so uh, would that be your um, quick, obvious tip for running, stretching, or do you have a... Give me a quick obvious tip for start slow. Okay. Start slow. Everybody's going to overtake you. Don't don't compare yourself to anybody. Uh, go your own pace, but go. <laughs> no matter what the weather, I know I know you've been uh, amazed at, uh, at at me going out there in this uh, drizzle rain plus one temperatures, dark and gloomy and miserable out there. But it. It changes uh, your mind changes, and that's the that's the kind of thing that I learned 
is that through going through this uncomfortable thing, your 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 mind does change, and you don't see the darkness and the gloomy as as it you used to before. You started running mm. before 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 I started running. I was I hell no, I'm not never gonna run in the winter time, never mm. ever. Especially given where you live, <laughs> we, yeah, we live yeah. in Finland. Exactly. Uh, so hell no, I'm not gonna do this. But uh, your mind changes uh it becomes comfortable with the uncomfortable excellent and uh, and i'm actually at the point where i'm i was just thinking about this this morning that um what would make me more uncomfortable um uh, i'm actually starting to embrace the uncomfortable wow and that's one, one of those weird things that has happened to me uh over that's the, the past, only way uh, we grow you cannot grow absolutely. with comfort Listen, we're not young anymore, so <laughs> I hate it when when I'm looking at expected uh, running times per kilometer at different age groups, oh, and okay. and I, it's painful to look at the expectations. Oh, what is it? Over four. What, what's the expectation? Let's say we're we're not expected to do what we do, not even close. One thing that I wanted to do with this running was not only to grow personally, but also to help other people and see that hey that guy really that guy <laughs> he run a thousand kilometers he 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 run what so to to kind of inspire other people that uh, are not doing what they could be doing that I th if i can inspire one person that that's that's fantastic well you've definitely inspired one person because <laughs> i'm very inspired so and i'm sure you've inspired many more hopefully hopefully yeah and uh yeah so that's that's now you asked previously how did i run every day i'm actually running every day now yeah that's, so well that's my next question now so what is your goal for 2020 i've never run a marathon so i'll run a marathon this year wow. i signed up for my first 10k race uh in helsinki in in uh, april Wow. And um, let's see what else. Um, I'm actually not going to run that many more kilometers per year, but I, I came up with this thing that as, as I'm looking for funding for my company, yeah, I want to be really uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, I, I put these two things together. So I decided uh, I'm going to run every day until I get funding for my company. <laughs> okay, excellent. Rain or shine, I'll be out there. I don't know if... if if and when we get funding for the company, will I stop, stop. running every day yeah, yeah. or will I just keep it as a challenge? That's a great point. But yeah. So if I run every day for 366 uh, days, because it's a leap year, mm. um, then that will be an, a, a completely ludicrous number <laughs> that I will get this year. And um, I, I was, I'm not even prepared to, mentally to 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 say that those numbers out loud because that would be mm. just crazy and of course there there will be injury time and probably get a cold or two and some travel and some stuff that will maybe stop me from running every day but that's until i achieve this ludicrous thing that uh, i need funding for my company to to move forward i'll run every day Next, we have Tracy Tate, who is a 
business coach providing marketing training for new business owners. The part I've selected here is when we start talking about the external opinion. Why do we need that quality external feedback from a coach or a mentor or a teacher or a friend? Well, because that's the whole point. We cannot see it in ourselves, but we see it in other people, which means everyone, and I mean everyone, needs somebody trustworthy to give them that external opinion. Otherwise, if we don't have that, we're just going to be walking around completely oblivious with no self-awareness of who and what we are. We need that external feedback because just like that blob of mayonnaise on your chin, obvious things can only be seen by someone else. There's always something because people don't know what they don't know. Mm. And when, you know, when we've been talking to people, you, you kind of think, oh, they're about to know that. That's pretty obvious. You know, they've been in business for, say, six months, been in business for a year. And I can remember when I first sort of started out in business, even though I had come from a marketing background, even though I had come from corporate land where I had been a person who made things happen, who would be a go-to person to get information. Starting my own business was so daunting. I thought all I had to do was turn up and offer what I did. Um, yeah, it is a bit of that, but there's a way that you do that. There's a way that you offer you know, what you do and talk about it. And so when I first started working with, with a coach, the questions that they asked me were questions I had never, ever ever ask myself Mm. at all so even by someone asking you a question actually is a form of teaching yeah opens the door yeah absolutely and it was I'd never thought about it but once you get asked the question it seems so something obvious doesn't it that's it and and also I think teaching is different to that, well, who am I to be telling someone how to do something? It's it's not broadcasting. It's not going, this is how you should be doing this. And I know because I've been doing it and I earn lots of money from doing it. It's, again, it goes back to what I said, I think, about meeting that person where they are now. So I'll have clients who are people, who, you know, in my audience that are thinking about leaving corporate land. So what, what do I need to know? What's it really like in the first six months of your business? Um, and I'll honestly talk about that or ask questions that, have you considered, you know, this? And I think so. a great teacher is someone who will stop and ask questions, give some information, answer questions. And I think that's the sign of a good teacher. Yeah. And I, another thing, another theory that I have, I really believe that people only learn. Tell me what you think of this. This is Mm. the simplest way to put it. I really believe you only learn something that you already know. 
Let me explain. Oh. Let me explain. Meaning, we need to be told something a few times. Meaning, simplifying it even further, we need reminding. And it only after a certain number of times encountering a concept, then you take it on board. Yeah. I think we already, everybody already knows yeah. what to do, but we need reminding because it's buried under the avalanche of noise that we oh, experience yeah. every day. Yeah. So the, we all know what I'm saying is it's just buried deep within us. <laughs> yeah. And so many of us are lost under the noise. Yeah. I think sometimes as well, though, that human beings, especially at this moment, there's a lot of fear. Fear of standing out, fear of being judged, fear of not being accepted. And so I think that then stops us from doing what we think are the obvious things. Yes. We are community. We are groups of people out to look after each other, to help each other thrive and survive. And and I think, so. We, yeah, with everything that kind of goes on around us, we can feel that we have to be constantly busy we've got demands on our time pulling us in one direction and another uh, we're looking sometimes for that cookie cutter solution that magic wand that is going to just take away everything that's stopping us from unfurling i like unfurling is one of my fab fab words i think as human beings we are always unfurling um i'm not familiar with that word i don't know unfurling. that unfurling yeah well if you think of a plant you know, okay. when, when, it, when it grows, and again, okay. it's going to be probably really rubbish for a podcast. I'm going to have to really visually describe what I mean. When you see a plant coming out of the soil and you just see this tiny little green shoot, you know, full of potential. Okay. And it grows and grows and then it just unravels. Okay. Into its, itself. Okay. And I think, I think as human beings, we... We can forget that we're unraveling, that we are unfurling. We are always, there's always something that, you know, can make us better than the, the version of ourselves that we were yesterday. There's always something to, to learn. Okay, I have a question. Do you okay. think we're born furled or do you think we're born unfurled, but then after a certain age, you furl up. Life causes you Ooh, to furl up. Yeah, and we I, have to yes. unfurl ourselves. Yeah. Well, because I, I don't think kids need unfurling. Yeah. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I think there's things there to help them unfurl even further uh, to realize, you know, their, their, their sort of full sort of potentials to, to be confident, to learn new habits, to, you know, to sort of not sort of stop themselves. Because I think even some children do have sort of traits within them that they might feel as adults then hold them back. That could be a different podcast altogether, Tan. But I do think as, as babies, we are born uh, with, with everything. You know, I think that's like the two sort of main fears are falling in loud noises. Everything else is then imprinted onto our brains. You know, the minute that we open our eyes, our brain is making judgments about what's going on around us. And then and that then becomes stories that we tell ourselves. Um, and that's where then the unfurling can, can happen because those stories, if they're stories that hold us back, that keep us stuck, that put us into that, you know, that box, then 
we do need help to to unfurl sometimes and and for a child as well um even a throwaway comment that they might hear from a teacher from a parent from a friend from a very early age can cause them to to go back in on themselves Next, we have Dima Sirotkin. Dima is the founder and CEO of a startup here in Finland, and he is a big reader. Like, he reads a lot. Just before this recording, I think the seven months leading up to this recording, he had read 33 books in seven months. So we talked about that. I asked him to share some of the insights that he learned from some of the best books. We chose a few from his list. We didn't have time to talk about it all, but I wish we did. And uh, we considered doing some kind of regular book review, um, I guess, podcast or even a YouTube series. So let me know. Get in touch if you want to see that. Um, But in this segment... I chose the book Atomic Habits because uh, habits are a very powerful thing. We are what we do every day. So if we can choose the habits that we want to build, and we can, then there's really no excuse to not succeed. Here's Dima. Let me ask you about atomic habits. Oh now, yeah, brilliant. You said, brilliant. You said... I, I can I can summarize it in one or two. Okay, times. great. But I'm I'm curious. First of all, you said you implemented nine habits yes. in four weeks because of that book. Tell me, or do yeah. you want to summarize it first, or do you want to tell me the nine new habits first? Yeah, I can tell you the habits. Yeah, so yeah, tell me what habits did so you? So it's uh, from watching less TV series, playing less computer games, TV series and movies. So I, I've been kind of like almost addicted. Have you? Uh, oh them. man, I got rid of that long time ago. Yes. I haven't watched yeah. TV or movies for so long. I do have the video game addiction. I still have video games, unfortunately. I, I've got recent get rid of it recently, and it's just it was transformative. Like it was like yes. And and the problem is that I would still watch like the profound stuff. Like for example, there is like a Dune the movie coming out by uh, Denis Villeneuve. So I'm gonna watch it. Like I I'm gonna go to the theater and I'm gonna be like among the first people just because. I know I'm going to love this so much. Like, mm. But I, I know what things I like. And the problem is that the, the things I like or I love are so few and far between. Mm. But then I ended up watching everything just because it's comfortable, just because it's a sort of it became a habit of like, oh, let's watch another one. Mm. And even though I'm not enjoying them anymore and they're not profound, and, and you know, so I would, yeah. But yeah, so that's one. Um, meditation. Okay. Uh, not eating food after eight, following my diet, mm. uh, doing at least a bit of yoga, like even five minutes per day. Mm. What else? Uh, what else was there? Reading. Uh, I stopped kind of like writing some of them because they became sort of automatic. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah. So uh, reading, going to sleep before uh, before midnight. Great. What time do you wake up? I wake up um, like eight. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I try to sleep like midnight to eight. Okay. I'm pretty, like, I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm not on the high ultra performer scope where they wake up at 5 a.m. or something. I'm, mm. I'm not doing it. So 
<laughs> and on the weekends I sleep like like till nine or something. Okay. So tell me what is it about that book that helped you gain these implement these Ooh. habits? Yeah, actually, I, hard, hard. So I think like th there are many like tools and insights, but I think the two that st stuck with me, or maybe there's there's a couple more. But so the one is habit tracking. So I have like a simple, small, small sort of like carton page, sort of like this um, like hard paper thingy, and it's um, I don't know, it's like A6 or something, like pretty small, mm. and that I can put it as a, like a book, you know, um, what is it called, uh, like in, in in my books as a page page holder. Okay. And um, I, I just put like the sort of date on it, like 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, etc. of like March, whatever. And then I put, uh, so that those are like columns, and then I put uh, rows as habits. And then I mark every day which habits I've done. I, I stopped like marking all of them because, well, for example, reading became somewhat automatic. I, I know that I'm uh, like, so far I didn't miss a day of like wow. publishing a book on Wednesday. So I know that it's like whatever. Like if, if it's gonna be sliding down, because if it if it if it's too much, it's a bit hard to track. But once you have like four or five habits, it's a bit easier to track. And um, so that's number one. Number two is making things easier slash more difficult. So for example, if you don't want to watch TV, uh, just unplug it every time you finish watching. Uh, like if you have an actual TV in your mm. home, then unplug this TV set, and that can be so powerful. Or like more practical. 21st century example. Mm. If you want to stop watching YouTube, download a simple extension on your um, Google Chrome and add it as a like blacklisted website. And you can wow. still go back. You okay. can still you can still like unblacklist it and still watch. But then every time you finish watching, just add it to the blacklist again. So what it does is that every time you need to make that action, it makes it harder. Because yep. you need to make extra step and it makes you think a bit longer about it. And you're yep. like, do I really want to do this? Uh, and and the opposite sort of if you make things easier then it's it, it's easier to do them essentially so if you you know figure out how to make it the easiest or uh, to create a reward for yourself that that kind of sticks there and and I think partly just to be honest just reading the book it was so inspiring examples he gives and and sort of the all the tools he gives that that I just gave the momentum to start these things so, nice. Yeah. In contrast, my next guest, Lee McAteer, read no books when he was starting his entrepreneurial career. Today, he is part of the management team at Tranmere Rovers Football Club in the English League. He's the founder of multiple successful companies in the travel industry, in the events industry, wrestling industry. So we talk about all of that. But in this segment that I selected, we talk about how he instinctively applied uh, a whole bunch of business principles and economic hacks without having learned them from a book or a classroom. Here's Lee. My education kind of progressed and somehow I became president of, of Leeds University Law Society. And I've got no idea how that happened, Tan, by the way. I mean, <laughs> I mean what it should have been was that it was the, uh, the award for the, for the biggest party animal, quite frankly. But what happened there was, was that I inherited this, this student law society and I decided to make some, some pretty big changes, which, quite frankly, everybody thought I was bonkers. 
because membership <laughs> for the Law Society was, if memory serves me right, I think it was five pounds to join. And I decided to make it 50 pounds to join. And everybody thought that I was absolutely off my head. Wow. But the reason why I did that was because I believed in what we were going to try and achieve. And I believed that if we could have a bigger, bigger kitty to work with, we could deliver so much more value for our students, whether that be cheaper books, whether that be events, great networking events in which we could get better speakers or better people to attend. And it got to the point where we actually generated £56,500 for a student law society, which at the time back in uh, what would have been, uh, gosh, uh, 2006, it was, it was pretty unheard of, quite frankly. Mm. And it got to the point where all these other students from all these other different um, majors were then decided to join the Law Society because <laughs> they wanted to work hard and play harder. And that was really the, the catalyst for what all these business ideas were because I was, I was seeing opportunity after opportunity. I created a magazine at law school called Unlawful Entry very bad pun. That's a show you can appreciate. Unlawful entry, actually, love it. Yeah, but that, that was that was what kind of gave me the catalyst for then what was my initial next career move. And that was, I went to work for EMAP, which then became Bauer Media. So I became production editor of Max Power magazine and and, and helped at times on, on certain other magazines within their portfolio. Mm. And Again, I didn't realize I was learning all of these entrepreneurial skills and, and, and the, the words business acumen and commercial awareness get used a lot, especially when you're in law school or um, in accountancy practices. But what it really comes down to is, is if you go to a wholesaler and you decide that you're going to buy 100 chocolate bars for a pound mm. each, the mm. reality is if you can sell them for two pound each, that's what business acumen and commercial awareness is. That's mm. what it really kind of comes down to. You were talking about while you were at Leeds, you raised the tickets from five pound to fifty pound. That's right. Yeah, I That's did. Interesting, I did. because I've been thinking about that recently. Let me let me put this to you. So, were you and you were saying you know you weren't aware about you you weren't thinking in terms of um, strategies that you've learned from any business books or anything. That's just like something that instinctively came to you. But you know, it, you're probably familiar now with like the tactic of raising prices because people automatically equate high cost with high value. Like you weren't even thinking of things like that. Well, it, it's true. I mean, the main thing for me was, was, was actually, I was thinking if I had that extra revenue that I would be able to deliver so much more when the reality <laughs> is if everybody only paid five pounds, what could, even though we had, I think it was over a thousand members, well, realistically, what could I really do with that? Whereas if I actually charged more, but that, and then the, could the audacity so much more. of increasing it <laughs> 10 times, tenfold, that yeah. I, I salute you, sir. Well, I, I appreciate that. It was very difficult at the time, Tan, because yeah. as I mentioned previously, is of course, everybody thought that I was mad. Everybody thought that they wouldn't pay it. But actually what I did was, was that I created these very high value booklets which mm. got sent to all of the freshers before they attended the uh, attended Leeds University Law School for the first time, explaining exactly what they would get for their money. And then we would then, I mean, I appreciate this is going a bit old school here, but you could, you could send a check in mm -hmm. um, in advance to become a member. So, of course, what we were also appealing to wasn't just the students or the prospective students, should I say, at that point, is actually to the parents to say, well, actually, this is a great thing because even on the book sale, 
if I'm spending, if, I'm, if I need to spend a thousand pounds on books, but I can get the secondhand ones for 500 instead of a thousand, all of a sudden 50 pounds sounds like quite a good deal. And that was mm. all the things in which I was trying to do to show value. Um, and then it was quite funny because I would then negotiate with all these different law firms and accountancy practices and say, well, if you want to sponsor our event, this is what it's going to cost. Even if we met in the middle, it was still so much more than what anybody had got previous. But of course, that meant that the expectations were higher and I had to manage those expectations. And, yeah. and again, and, these are things that, you know, you learn from, I don't know, economics, human behavioral psychology in terms of having a high anchoring price, you know, having a raising the perception of value. So these are things that you just did instinctively without thinking about any kind correct. of, you know, textbook philosophy. I love it. I, I, I mean, literally, it, it, truthfully, it's only been in the last year or so that I've actually read any business books whatsoever, if the truth be told. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and, and because when people say to me, who's your mentor, who's this, who's that, is my mentor growing up, it was always my dad, purely because he, he drove me and pushed me all the time. So, for example, I could have got to the moon and he'd have said, well, that's great, son, but why didn't you get to Mars? So he was always pushing me mm. time and time again. And whilst that was at times very difficult as a kid to deal with because it meant for, for me that, that no matter what I did, it was never good enough. From a long-term perspective, what it meant was was that actually I did ultimately achieve so much more than I ever thought would be possible because I don't think if that had happened, I don't think I would have come anywhere near close to what we've done if it wasn't for the fact that my, my father was pretty difficult with me. Next, I talked to Baron Kokmas, who was just a few days over 17 years old when we recorded this episode. We talked about how he started his AR, augmented reality company, at the age of 14. How he got the idea, how he got discovered. We also talked about how he travelled to Silicon Valley from London, just as the US shut down for the pandemic. And how he hustled to try and get meetings when nobody wanted to meet anymore. That's all in the full episode, which you can go listen to later. But now, in this segment, I ask Baron, what's it like to start a company while still in school and get an acquisition offer for that company before his GCSE exams and what he thinks about education in general? Here is Baron. So when you dropped out of school at 16 to start the company what did your parents think yeah yeah i mean that was uh definitely an interesting choice i mean at the time i did have the acquisition offer on the table oh, so, so you, know, you that already was had an... the validation okay well tell us about that so you were already so you hadn't left school yet and then yeah yeah acquisition so actually, offer for the company. i was yeah yeah so actually you know what happened was you know one of the signups turn back to us and say, oh, okay, really cool stuff. I'd love to try out your platform. I ended up traveling up to their offices and uh, yeah, walked them through the demo. And uh, yeah, they ended up sending a uh, you know memorandum of understanding just to like an MOU, just to uh, basically say they want to buy us out and like hire out the team. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was, that was really out of the blue and it was quite surprising at the time. So once I got that offer 
and you know the, the sort of salary package and, and whatnot it offered um that was kind of like my validation to say oh great you know <laughs> i can actually do this full time and mm. you know someone's already valued the company at that stage because before that we're building tech well tech is intangible it's not mm. an asset like real estate that you can value so that's why you know that that was my validation to actually drop out and um yeah just continue pursuing it. and so since then um you know we're still in talks with them uh, like in terms of we've done the due diligence and uh we've done actually a, a client project with them uh, in wales so uh, what we're looking to do now is is um yeah just see where we can take that but currently we are also looking to to complete our own uh seed raise so you didn't so, accept the offer yeah i mean what we're trying to do is actually shift it more into a partnership and so you know work with them as partners and so okay. in that way we you know both parties can can benefit or you know like sort of um not not exactly a joint venture but like um, basically you know we can uh, help them on the augmented reality side and uh yeah they can focus on all the other product offerings they have okay um would take a little moment to tell me about that period so were you doing gcses yeah yeah so i actually i had just finished them how i sort of structured it was around that period i focused more on the subjects that i cared about so for example <laughs> like uh religious education um so i you know i i really didn't study at all for that um so, so i kind of like sacrificed some things did but, you pass religion um i'm not exactly sure i think i did um <laughs> you but, didn't even check yeah. the grade well no no i i think um i i didn't get too high of course but uh yeah it, it doesn't really matter since it's not something i want to pursue wow. so i prioritized uh mainly computer science and uh yeah that's about it already <laughs> Wow, dude. And what so and tell me about the conversations you had with parents or uh, advisors or teachers, what you know, what kind of conversations yeah, did you sure. have? Yeah, I mean, at, at this time they already knew what, what uh exactly I was doing. You know, I I sent like the MOU to like my uh counselor. I you know, basically said to them, look, you know, I've already uh gone an offer that's like 4x uh what I would make if I graduated from university mm-hmm. um you know and and just studied computer science so that's why i think it, it's like you know if you do something that you're you know really passionate about and um you don't really listen to or, or you know you don't really follow the the well-worn path mm. there's a lot of opportunity out of that because it's original and um you know especially in the in the tech industry as soon as i got that offer i mean that that really went to to show like okay great i mean I've got this full acquisition offer for my company like I started literally a year ago um like I registered it a year ago under my dad's name mm-hmm. and um you know n- now like I like I'm uh doing what exactly what I want to do which is uh, developing cool tech that I actually enjoy doing so and so yeah. the stuff I was learning in computer science in GCSE was very very basic python um and for for example like in that 2 year space um you could get a Udemy course and learn <laughs> way more than that so mm. i think yeah i think it really just depends on like taking it into your own hands because uh yeah depending on school to do everything for you is is like probably the worst way uh wow. to go about it my next guest is aj anila or Ayi, as it's pronounced here in Finland. 
Kaminsky is a television and movie director. In the full episode, we talk about how he started his career. We talk about lessons he's learned during his film and TV and commercial career, and how he's used those lessons to help him become a better creative leader. We also talk about the adventures in getting his first film made, which was a very ambitious Finnish movie set in China. Not only set in China, but filmed in China.、Uh, here is a little snippet about how unprecedented it was for a young first-time filmmaker with no experience to be the captain of the ship on this kind of project. Here is AJ. Were you aware, even back then, that as a first-time filmmaker, this is not typical? Like you don't usually first-time films are one location, you know, couple of actors, all dialogue, right? Like dramas. So, were you aware that this is not a typical first film? Def- definitely, and I was on. I was aware of it twenty-four-seven in a way, <laughs> and everybody else was also because it, very, it was a very hard thing to finance. Because I was a first-time director, I remember my producer pitching the film. I think somewhere in Europe, and、uh, everybody loved the pitch, but he was just pitching the story and idea. And、uh, then somebody from the audience asked him, "But who's the director?" <laughs> and the producer, who he was hoping they wouldn't honest, ask, very honest, was like, "Well, even in Finland, he's a nobody." So everybody <laughs> laughed. So that 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 was a,、uh, but. As we started to come closer and closer to production, I think also that the producers and the financiers started to, in a way, get a little bit scared. That is, is he going to pull this off, and what's going to happen? And so they actually had a very good idea that they would start bringing more experienced directors to have a coffee with me at the office or have a phone call, and they they would just tell me how it is to try to steer、wow. this kind of a bigger ship. And I thought that that was actually a very、That's、good idea. So good. And I had a very good conversations with directors that I look up to, and and、uh, I got a very good points from them. And I was actually doing notes, and then I met this one director who was telling me that that directing a film is、uh, is it is it's the same thing as you would be leading a war group、yep. into a war. Yep. So the last thing that you're gonna have is gonna be your own credibility. So make your Make your plans well. Make a plan A. Make a plan B. And when those fail, and they will fail, and、mm. people will turn to you throughout this、uh, during this chaos of filming, and they will ask you that, "What are we going to do next?" If you don't know the answer, lie. That、mm. you always have to know. Like, yeah, you always have to know what is going to happen, and every every gonna gonna look to you for answers. So、yeah. I actually like through that. I wrote that down on my book. That okay, lie, and I underlined it. <laughs> so I made a plan A, I made a plan B, I made a plan C, and every morning before going into shootings, I made a plan D. And first shooting day, my first shooting day in a, in a, in a professional、uh, production, plan A like fell before the breakfast, and plan B <laughs> before lunch, and right after lunch, I was already like trying to scramble up with the. 
plan D and my main actor came to me asking a good question that why the f do I need to start from there and why cannot why cannot start from there because it's more natural and I didn't know the answer and I just lied to his face I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very good liar I'm Love a very it. good liar so I, I just lied to his face and okay, the production went on and I just had this experience I think it was the shooting day eight when I called home to my to my uh, girlfriend and uh, she was like how is it going and i started to cry and i was like this is going so badly because i need to all the time lie to people that all my plans are falling apart and blah 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 and she asked me that well does it even look good and i was like well it looks amazing so i'm 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 happy Mm. We, we're gonna get through with this but like 56 shooting days later i was i was 15 kilos lost from my weight and i was so stressed out that uh i remember thinking in china when everybody else was uh, excited about the rap party i was thinking that i will never make films again it's wow, not worth dude. it if it if it's this hard and i then it all already hit me that why the why why did i actually listen to this guy's advice <laughs> about lying because it's like i don't even look up to his films i don't even like his films okay but that in a way is the it was nowadays i know that it was in a way the old way of thinking or that how you would need to lead a creative group mm. that you would need to keep your face and that kind of thing that's that's bullshit. that's okay. not the way that you direct or lead a group of creative people and after that it started to be about complete honesty and, okay. and more putting the trust in yourself also in those scenes that i can i can pull this off and uh, it's okay in a in a very good working environment to say that by the way guys i don't have the slightest idea <laughs> what mm. we're gonna do next but let's figure it out yep yeah that's a great point i think it's it's about giving them confidence and if you don't have the confidence yourself then you're gonna to have to resort to lying but if you do have the confidence in yourself then you can be open and say actually i'm not sure about this you know you can talk to the dop what do you think oh exactly exactly and it's it's it's, it's a shame that i had to do <laughs> i had to learn it throughout this one production and don't get me wrong i'm very proud of the film and and but, but yeah. when i look at the final result i i i can see that this film has been forced into its mode it doesn't breathe it's it's not mm. alive as a good film should be and that's because i wasn't ready for the compromises i wasn't ready for the surprises i i and when i didn't know what i was doing i was lying and just trying to force the film in the into the image that i had in my head filmmaking doesn't work like that yeah but don't you think that was the advice you needed to hear at the time if you didn't have that lie written down and underlined do you think you would have survived it uh, that's actually a very good point i think that that was that was exactly the lie that i needed that, that the advice that i needed to hear that made me the director that i am exactly. today and mm -hmm. i needed to go through that experience to to learn how to do this And next, we have Rachel Achille, who is a business consultant based in Manchester, England. In the full episode, we talk about communication, human behavior, and general learning and productivity. 
But in this segment, we talk about NLP, which is a fascinating subject for me. I mean, I'm all about communication, but I learned that NLP is communication plus other additional factors. So here in this segment, I ask Rachel, how exactly is an NLP practitioner different to, say, someone who you label an effective communicator? You said a few things like using NLP to build rapport. Mm -hmm. Why can't we say she was using language? Like, why can't she say that she, you know, she was just using her communication skills to build rapport? Like, why does NLP have to be a thing? Because I don't think it's language on its own. I think it's a series of things because I could happily say, I'm so happy to see you, Tant. Mm. And the deadpan (laughs) tone that I use, you know, (sighs) betrays the fact that maybe I'm not or, you know, that's fine. And, and it does happen sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're meeting people who you don't really like, or you're fed up and you're tired in as much as you try and get in the game. And, and I'm pretty sure you've probably had that experience where, you know, you've met people and they're saying one thing, but somehow it doesn't match or you're, you're just not feeling it. Like your the energy's different. And I think that's where the uh, linguistic programming, sorry, the neuro and the programming comes into it because, you know, you have to, use so much more than just your language to Mm. to basically demonstrate that you're feeling whatever it is that you're suggesting you're feeling okay would you not agree yeah but i'm still trying to understand why nlp is a separate thing on its own what what's what's the difference between somebody who uses nlp and somebody who's just a great communicator because the way I see it, mm-hmm. if you have strong communication skills, it means you're able to think clearly and you're able mm-hmm. to express clearly what you're thinking. Because mm-hmm. most of the time, if we're communicating, we're communicating to get something. I mean, it yeah. it doesn't have to be as dark as I want to hypnotize you or I want to <laughs> I want to you know influence you in any way. If I'm communicating, if I'm saying something to you, I'm trying to sell you an idea. For me, what I would say is the difference between a skilled communicator and someone who's got NLP techniques is one one person is doing it consciously and you're appealing to all senses. I think um, if you're just a great communicator, then it can be quite, it's almost hit, it can be hit and miss. A good example would be, right, so we're either, have you heard of VACOG? Mm-mm. Okay. So some people are really visual. So, you know, when I, when you're painting a picture for them, so I'm a visual person, which is one of the reasons why I will say painting a picture, you know, so whereas some people are, so that's the V, then there's A, some people are auditory. So they will say, that sounds great. You know? Mm. Um, so that's someone who's auditory, someone who talks with their feelings, like, you know, I feel that's kinesthetic. So some people are very, and if you listen to the language that people use, they will expose what their, you know, which is their lead sense because we use pretty much all of our senses, but there will be one that is a lead sense that we use quite often. So, um, then, uh, the O in VACOG is, um, Ooh, God, that's gone out of my head. I'm just looking it up now. Olfactory. 
Our olfactory, yeah, thank you. So our olfactory is like using your nose. So like some people are very sensitive to smells. So no matter how much, you know, what you're saying and, you know, someone likes you, if you've got really strong smelling perfume or aftershave or mm. you, BO, you know, mm. maybe that because that person leads with that sense, they will never like you, you mm. know? So it's like, I like what that person's saying, but I don't trust them because they don't shower, you know, that mm. kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then there's gustatory, which is like, you know, food, your sense of, and, for, you know, they say when you go for interviews that you should always go after lunch because people are full and, you know, so they're content. Whereas if you happen to go before lunch, people are a bit grumpy and a bit ratty. So we all have, we lead, we all have these different senses and we lead with different ones. So going back to your initial question, yeah. if you're just speaking off the cuff, then yeah, you might hit one of those. But if you know where that person's coming from, you can paint a picture using whatever sensor really resonates with them to really put together a package that's palatable to that individual. So have you found yourself accidentally or you know, just using some of these tips that you've learned to influence others yeah so I was really worried when I first learned about these techniques because my concern was that someone was getting into my head and doing something and I'm a very private person so the idea that someone could do that without my consent or knowledge disturbed me but the more I came to know about NLP I realized that it really wasn't possible you know, mm, that, mm. you know, there, apart from the fact that there's code of ethics that people aren't supposed to use that you only ever, you know, especially with hypnosis, like people can, you're, you, you have to be open to that suggestion. Someone can't do that without your will. So, you know, you have to almost give them permission in order to do so. Yeah. And so I do do that. I mean, like I do kind of use some um, NLP techniques because it kind of, it just quickens the process of building rapport and things like that. And in my uh, work where I work with people and people are having to reveal a lot of vulnerabilities um, and, you know, situations that they've been in, I think it's important for them to feel like they're doing that in a safe space. So I've actually found that using NLP has helped me to be able to build rapport quicker so we can get to the heart of the matter. So I'm doing it for the individual rather than for me. Mm. So because they just need to feel like they're in a safe space. And I think that, you know, that's a good thing. All right. So that was volume one of noticing the obvious i had 11 guests who i really enjoyed speaking to um i hope you enjoyed listening to these little highlight clips if you want to go listen to the full episodes you can find them all at noticingtheobvious.com or just searching noticing the obvious on itunes and spotify and google play store and other podcast locations right continuing from here i am gonna start a new season volume two i hope you will join me for some more super cool guests from around the world and interesting insights into personal philosophy 
business philosophy and reminders which help us notice the obvious. I'm Tan Lei. Thanks for listening. Join me again next time.